Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. My dad will be so grateful. See you next time on the Mindful Fire Podcast. Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast, where we explore living mindfully on the path to financial independence and beyond. I'm your host, Adam Quayle, and I'm so glad you're here. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Bex Burton, a love and relationship coach who helps fiercely independent women attract and grow lasting love without sacrificing who they are or what they want out of life. Over the last decade, Bex has committed to the study and growth of lasting love within herself and in her union with her beloved. Through her signature programs, Your Majesty and Core Joy Living, she helps other fiercely independent women do the same. Bex inspires deeply transformational experiences through movement, mindfulness, and meditation via live and online programs, spectacle dance performances, and nature immersive glamping retreats. Catch up with her at BexBurtonCoaching.com or on Instagram at LoveCoachBex, B-E-X. In this episode, Bex shares why relationships are so important to leading a fulfilled life. Bex also shares her journey and how she came to this work of love and relationship coaching after struggling for many years in these areas herself. She also shares what relationship coaching actually is, why it's needed, and what it looks like in practice. We also discuss the idea of our relationship with ourselves, and she shares why our relationship with ourselves and the level of self-love we feel for ourselves directly impacts and is foundational to the relationships we have with others. She shares a ton of stories from her own life and stories she's heard from clients that illustrate why self-love and our relationship with ourselves is so critical. You can find the full show notes for today's episode, including any links, resources, and how to get in touch with Bex at mindfulfire.org slash 62. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bex and learned a ton that I plan to incorporate in my own life and relationships, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Let's jump into today's episode. Bex, welcome to the Mindful Fire podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Adam. What a pleasure to be here. Hello, everybody listening. So Bex, let's start by putting this conversation into context. This podcast is all about creating the life that you dream of living by using the tools of mindfulness and financial independence. And so where do relationships fit into creating a fulfilled life? That's a great question, Adam. Going right into the deep end. <laughs> I love it. Well, relationships are inevitable in life. They're integral to the human experience. We have relationships not only with romantic partners, we have relationships with our friends, our families, our coworkers, our community members. We have relationships with strangers, whether we call those relationships or not. And there are tools that I teach women to attract and grow lasting, loving relationships that apply to all the relationships that we have. So it's important for us to learn about relationships, learn about how to be in relationship, because it literally comes into play every single day of our life. We don't live in isolation. Even in a pandemic lockdown, we don't live in isolation. Our ways of being as human individuals impact those around us. And if we have zero self-awareness and we have zero practices for self-reflection or self-mastery, we're walking through life 
like a loose cannon. You probably have some of these people in your life where their emotions are right at the surface, meaning you never know what might set somebody off. Think of somebody in your life that just is, uh, what do we call them, a live wire or a short fuse. That's the term, right? Somebody in your life has a short fuse. And if we think about that person, chances are they don't have a lot of self-awareness. They haven't done a lot of self-reflection. They don't really know why they do the things they do, why they say the things that they do. And when we look at the relationships that they have in their life, chances are that they cause harm in those relationships. They hurt people. They say damaging things. They create distance because of the way that they show up in relationship. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be 97 years old on my deathbed and have nobody in my life because I was such an a-hole that I drove everybody away. That is a sad, a sad end to life. And it's completely avoidable by focusing on the quality of our relationships, recognizing if any of the relationships that we're in are unfulfilling, unsatisfying. Equally, on the other hand, recognizing the relationships that give you life, that light you up, that, that fuel your passion, that propel you forward, that encourage you and uplift you. Once we have a sense of the quality of our relationships, then we can start playing with, can I improve the quality of my relationships? If the answer is no to that, are some relationships meant to be exhausted? Are some relationships just meant to end? It's very difficult to create love and loving relationships with other people when we don't have that foundational love for ourselves. And that foundational love for ourselves is not automatic. The whole point here is that living a good life, living a fulfilled life is interdependent of other people in your life. And Having a fulfilled life, to me, sounds like having love, having joy, having security, so many other things. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd love to have you share a little bit about yourself, your journey, and what you're up to in the world. Yeah, happily. Well, my name is Bex Burton, and I help fiercely independent women attract and grow lasting love without sacrificing who they are or what they want out of life. And I have been serving in this role for the last six years. And I believe that this is a calling, that this is a, a life calling that kind of knocked me over the head at one point. And there's a saying in, I think, in the, in the growth and development world of we teach what we most struggle with, or we're called to teach what we were called to learn. And I absolutely abide by that. I feel like this path for me has been such a blessing in helping me in my own love and relationship life, and therefore have been able to help others. The road to getting here wasn't quite linear. I am a retired nightclub performer, hula hoop circus performer, as well as a Pilates instructor, personal trainer. That was a former life. I grew up as a dancer and studied communications, went away from communications back into the body as a young adult and living in New York City and just had a blast as a young person learning about kinesiology and anatomy and, and working with people to help them heal their movement concerns and help them find strength from the center of their body, the, from their core. I'm very passionate about that life. And it, in that process, I also I was just following the crumbs as a young person with a sort of a spiritual bent. My MO is to, to follow the crumbs, listen to the universe, follow my heart. And I have been very fortunate to do so. I know that's a, a privilege. 
And following my heart led to a, a dance audition, which led to introducing me to a modern day hula hoop dance as a just remote as that sounds. And hula hoop dance became an absolute passion of mine. I started teaching classes, choreographing hula hoop dances for 50 to 100 hula hoopers in New York at different festivals. At one point, there was this really brilliant intersection of my creative life and my love life when I had just broken up with a guy that I thought was going to turn into something really special. I thought we had long-term potential. And when I found out that he didn't really share that vision, I released him in a very amicable breakup, which was the very first one of my entire life at that time, after having several explosive breakups in my life. When I really dove into my creativity, I dove into this project that I was working on. I choreographed this dance for 50 hula hoopers in New York. I put these two songs together. And as I'm writing out the lyrics for my dancers, for their cues, I realized that the two songs that I had picked, when you put them together, like I was hearing a love story play out in these two songs. And I thought, well, that's funny. I just broke up with this guy and here I am writing a love story. Fast forward to maybe two months later, and right before this show went into production, I got an outstanding message in my online dating profile inbox from a very impressive man. And that led to a first date. The man on this first date was very impressed by my choreography and my project and offered to film my project sight unseen right on the spot on that first date. And as it turns out, this man is now my husband. <laughs> and uh, the day of production, he's there with his film crew. I'm there with my hula hoopers. And halfway through the first performance of the dance, I almost fell over because I'm hearing the music as if for the first time and realizing, can I swear? <laughs> can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> Holy shit. I, I think I wrote my own love story. And here's this guy that here he is. And I've gathered all of my people to welcome him into my life. And the, the name of the piece was called Hello. And it just, for me, being a spiritual, spiritually leaning person, I just felt like there were so many signs and synchronicities of us coming together. After that performance, he literally asked me if I believed in soulmates. And I just, I almost fell over. And for me, having struggled in love for over a decade prior to that moment and meeting him and the way that we came together was so inspiring. I, I was just so full of this feeling of, holy crap, it exists. Like what everybody talks about, this true love business, it's real and it's out there and it's available. And so I was just so inspired to share it. Nick and I started speaking together at festivals and events, just very casually holding space for dialogues about being and being with a strong partner and conscious communication. This was before either one of us had any training, any skill. And then uh, shortly after, I guess it was about two years after we met, we packed up from New York. We moved across the country. We landed in Boulder, Colorado. And I'm a very passionate person. Sometimes I'll leap before thinking things through fully. And so all of a sudden, I'm halfway across the country. And realizing that my entire business clientele is back East. And the first year we lived out here, I flew back to New York nine times. And I have a, a workshop of, of 50 dancers in a room for a weekend. And then I come back to Boulder and I, I'm trying to launch things and I'd have a classroom of two. So it was very humbling at the beginning here. But I, I remember very clearly, I'll never forget 
driving home from one of those two-person classes where I had recently had a, a lunch date with a friend who's a dance teacher here. And she told me, she was like, well, yeah, it took me about five years to build my my following here. And I just so clearly remember driving home in the rain, think F that, like, if I'm going to spend five years building something, it, it's not going to be a, a location-based dance class. Like I'm at a certain age now. I want to build something location independent. I want to build something scalable. I want to build something that has a greater impact than just dance. And not to belittle dance because it is wildly cathartic and, and healing and transformative. And I do use dance in the work that I do today. But what came through for me in that car ride home was this is it. This is your opportunity to take all that love, inspiration, and share it widely with the world. And that was back in 2014. At the same time that I started learning about online marketing business, I enrolled in a coaching program and started you know, learning more about love, learning more about relationships, conscious communication, and all of these things that I was so passionate about yet had really struggled with in my own life. And uh, yeah, there have been some peaks and valleys along the way, but six years later, here we are. And I am just so honored and touched to do the work that I do because so many of the women that I serve have really suffered for longer than they have to. And love doesn't have to be that kind of a struggle. And it's really just such a privilege to be in in the service role. Very cool. That is quite the story. And meeting Nick, we met through Nick because I work with Nick and he was on several episodes of the podcast, which I will link to in the show notes. So if you want to hear more of the story from his perspective, not that we get too much into that, but you can check that out. But hearing that story is is very interesting how the breadcrumbs started falling into place, the pieces started aligning to the fact that while you were creating this choreography and music to go along with it, like a love story. In that time, while you were deep in that, love came your way and you were ready to see it and accept it and, and embrace it. I'm not at all surprised that he offered to help you with the video stuff sight unseen. That just seems to be the kind of guy he is. That's pretty is cool to hear true. as well. And then, yeah, it just fell into place for you. That's really awesome. So tell me a little bit more about what is a love coach and why does this need to exist? We all grow up thinking it's just going to happen to you sometime. You're just going to find the love of your life. Putting aside the fact that 50% of people in this country get divorced, why does this need to exist? And what does the work look like? Yeah, absolutely. And and also to that point, I think the statistic around second marriages failing is somewhere around 65, 68%. So yes, it is definitely a needed role. For some people, it does flow naturally. And I, I love how you said that it all came together. And, and yes, it did, but it, it definitely took firm boundaries and a flexing of what I call the sacred no in order to attract and, and have what I have in the relationship that I have today. And I'll talk about that sacred no a little bit, because this is back to your question. What is a love coach? Why do we need this? Let me go there first. I'll come back to sacred no. So a love coach is someone who has studied and practiced love in their life, who has some knowledge, who has some wisdom, but who also has the skill and talent for posing questions and opening up doors for you that may have previously been locked, doors of understanding, doors of perception. A coach, first of all, 
is different from a therapist. A therapist is there to help you unlock the happenings of the past so that you better understand your present. A coach is someone who can help you see where things in your present are blocking you from moving forward towards your future. A love coach is going to be somebody who holds you with the utmost care and compassion and patience and understanding while asking you questions to help you understand your circumstances. A coach isn't there to tell you what to do. A coach isn't there to give you advice because we all know how it feels to be told what to do or to be told when you're doing something the wrong way. A coach is there to help guide someone to their own inner truth. I look at you as the onion and I'm there helping you peel back the layers. You're peeling back your own layers, but I'm just facilitating. I'm like wiggling the top of the onion skin open so that it's just much easier to fall away. So I I help people reveal their own truth, see things that are lingering in their blind spots that previously they were not able to see. For example, in my own life, in my own journey, I grew up as a as an overweight kid. I was overweight probably until like the end of my college years. So it's pretty painful to be outside of the norm. Kids can be vicious. But as a young woman, I felt invisible and I felt unattractive because I didn't get the same kind of attention that other girls in my peer group would get from boys. A woman in my position then, she would begin to develop beliefs about herself or beliefs about her body or beliefs about men or love or relationships based on her lived experience. And I did. I developed a belief that I wasn't beautiful that I wasn't attractive because none of the men, well, boys really at that age, none of the boys that I was interested in even saw me. There's that example. Women in that position might get into relationships where they are not actually held in priority. They're not in a true partnership. They're in a relationship either out of convenience or because they chased and convinced a man down and he just gave up and said, okay, these relationships aren't going to become something that is a true partnership until there's an inner change within her, a a shift in her relationship with herself, a shift in the beliefs that she holds about herself. And that's that's one example of the kind of archetype of women that I see and the, the archetype of beliefs that she holds. And then if we swing the pendulum kind of to the opposite end of the spectrum, there's also the women who love the idea of a relationship But when it comes to true partnership, they're unwilling to give up control. They're unwilling to get vulnerable, share their truth, because they fear that they'll be sacrificing themselves. They'll be giving away too much of their life for this relationship. Some see it as weakness. And I'm I'm framing this in the context of women just because that's the primary audience that I serve. But Men show up with these beliefs as well. You'll hear my words say women, but just know that it applies to to both genders. Absolutely. You were going to talk a little bit about the role of the sacred no. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Happily. Yeah, this is a big lesson point that I teach the women that I work with because for a lot of women, it's a breakthrough. I'll use my own story because it's top of mind. So prior to meeting Nick, the man who's now my husband, I had three fairly significant long-term relationships over the course of a decade. All three of those ended in the same explosive breakup where I 
got to a point where I felt like I was outgrowing the relationship. This person couldn't keep up with me. I was getting bored. I was getting antsy. I have a, a bit of a restless nature. And so my solution to these relationships was to flip the table and walk out. Just, I don't love you anymore. Bye. I'm like having a visceral reaction as I say that because it was very damaging. And so moving on from that, after a while, like I recognized, wow, that third breakup, that was exactly the same as these other two. I'm the common denominator. Let's figure this stuff out because this is about me. So I made the decision to date myself for longer than my longest relationship. At that time, that meant three years, which at that time felt like an eternity. But what happened in that time was there was just this major shift, a mindset shift, where I was no longer like out seeking relationship. I made the relationship with myself more important than trying to create a relationship with a man. In that time, I did date. I was dating for fun. I was dating for knowledge. And I ended up casually dating this man who was in my friend group. I thought he was super sexy. He was very smart. He was foreign. Anyway, long story short, we had come together on this casual agreement. And I see women in my practice do this a lot. They come together without clarity, without any kind of declaration of what they're actually looking for. We hook up. It's fun on a Friday night or a Sunday morning brunch. But when I invited this man to be my date at three separate weddings, he declined me each time. That was a shock to my system because for the first time, I'm thinking, wow, here's a man I'm sharing my body with, I'm sharing my time with. And I am secretly hoping that this turns into something bigger than what it is, yet he's not available. And it was the first time that I was in that position. The beautiful thing about that is that it helped me see what I was actually desiring. I could very clearly discern that this was never going to be it. Now, that's a major choice point. A lot of women in my practice will choose to stay in that relationship and continue trying and trying to make it something that it never will be. The sacred no is when we are at that choice point, we can see, wow, this is 80% of what I desire, or maybe it's 60%, whatever. For me, it was 80%. It was like, he he was good looking, it was educated. But that 20% that was missing was commitment. (laughs) It was like the invested interest in getting to know me and like pursuing me and, and the desire to create a life together. And for the first time, I recognized that and I was like, yeah, this is not 100% of my vision. This is not aligned with what I desire. And so I'm going to say no, thank you. And boy, it sucks just to flex your sacred no. Like your sacred no is a difficult no. I just went through this with a client. She as well is a, a, a successful, beautiful woman. She's in her 50s and she knows very much what she doesn't want. She's very clear on what she wants. She's been dating this guy for the last three or four weeks, just getting to know him and weighing whether he's for her or not. And the last two or three times that they've engaged, there's just been something lacking. She's been able to pinpoint it. She's gotten very clear on what it is. And she's like, gosh, but would I be doing a disservice to myself if I just let him go? If I just released him? Gosh, but he's so kind and he's so into me. But the truth is that piece, that 20% that you don't feel is not just going to magically show up. And so again, the, the sacred no is an uncomfortable one. It's saying no to something that is so close to what you desire. But the beautiful thing about flexing your sacred no is that when you say no to what you don't want, you are clearing the runway for more of what you do want. That's why 
when I work with women, we start with the vision. We start with paint me a picture. Let's put your vision into words. Let's create snapshot moments of the life that you are creating with your future beloved. I had a client, I got chills thinking about it. She painted this beautiful picture of the two of them in the backyard on a patio and he's grilling and she's sitting there in her Adirondack chair drinking wine and the sun is coming down. Those are the yes moments that we need to keep coming back to every time we flex our sacred no. I'm saying no to this because I'm saying yes to that glass of wine in my Adirondack chair while my hottie does the barbecue in on my patio. Yeah, that's interesting. So Bex, it sounds like there's a huge requirement of awareness and clarity in the work that you do, helping the women you work with develop this clarity for themselves and the awareness of maybe I am at 80%. Maybe this is pretty good. What is that 20%? And so I'm curious what the role of mindfulness is in the work that you do and how it relates to this need for awareness. Yeah, I'm, I'm so happy you asked that. Mindfulness plays a huge role in this process. One, when we look at where a woman or a man is coming from with their motivations for attracting a partner, you know, that's the very first thing. We look at why do you want this relationship? That's actually one of my intake questions that I ask people. Why is it so important to you? The answer that they give gives me a clear indication of whether this person is ready for this work or not. And it all depends on whether their motivations for this relationship are externally driven or internally driven. Externally driven motivations for wanting a partner is maybe to have a companion, to have somebody to do stuff with, to have somebody to share my life with. These are all fine reasons. And don't get me wrong, there's no right or wrong. There's no good or bad, whether they're external or internal, because the right combination is a bit of both. But when people are looking for relationships because they're lonely or to fill some other kind of void that's lacking. Another client that I have is a single mom, recent empty nester. And I think the day her beloved son moved out, the next day she was on the online apps. (laughs) She says to me that her son has been her whole world. Now that he's gone, now what? You know, so those are the externally motivated reasons that people want love and relationship. Again, not to say that that's good, bad, or wrong, but without the internally driven motivators, we're not going to have a lot of success. And let me talk about the internally driven motivators for a second. Of course, having a companion, having someone to share my life with is a little bit of both internal and external. I did an intake with a woman recently who maybe have given me one of the best answers that I've ever heard as an example of internal motivator. She wants to attract a partner who will challenge her and who will inspire her to be the best version of herself that she could possibly be. She wants to increase her capacity for love, for compassion, for empathy, not only for another person, but also for herself. Needless to say, we're working together. To your question, what is the role of mindfulness in all of this? I think the very first place that we see mindfulness playing a role here is what are the motivators? Why do you want this partner in your life? Are you aware of what's driving you? Do you feel like something is missing that you're trying to fill in your life? Or is it more of a pull or a calling or an add-on? I like to think of like the, the cherry and the sprinkles on top of the amazing Sunday that you already are. If that is not an easily determinable factor, then the invitation there is to 
get quiet and still, maybe do a little journaling and explore that prompt. Why do I want this relationship? Other ways that mindfulness comes into play is being in touch, aware of, and able to identify and communicate our feelings. This is, this one was a huge learning curve for me. Within the container of relationship, our feelings in love and relationship, I believe, really are driving motivators. And they are clear indicators of what is good, what feels aligned, and what is not so great, what doesn't feel aligned, what isn't right for us. So I'll put it into maybe some more concrete context. Mindfulness, being aware of three things, really, our felt sense in our bodies, our feelings or emotions at any given time, and our thoughts. So we've got some brain, some heart feelings, and equate feelings with the heart, and our brain and our thoughts. All three of these things are sources of data and sources of information for anyone on the journey to love or even growing a relationship. A woman that I I had mentioned before, a client who had been dating this guy for three or four weeks, trying to determine whether or not he's the right one for her. The coaching for her and any other person on the journey is to be in touch and aware of, present with these sources of information at any given point along the journey. Whether that's recognizing that he walked in the room and her stomach turned. That's some pretty big information. Or he sent her a text and instead of getting excited, she felt a little disconnected and didn't feel compelled to reply to him until the next day. That's some pretty big information too. And a lot of times we want so badly the relationship, we want so badly the outcome that we bypass all this information or we overlook it or we pretend we don't feel it because we're just so desperate to fill that void. So if we're aware that we feel this void, then we back that work right back up and we bring it back to ourselves. Because as I mentioned, that other person or whatever we are seeking to fill that void with is never going to fulfill us. It's never going to fill that emptiness that we feel. If there's recognition that the motivation is externally driven, that the motivation is because we feel this void, the work then shifts. The focus is no longer on attracting a partner. The focus then becomes on becoming whole from within, focusing on the self, focusing on, well, can we dive into this void? Can we get more information about the void? Are we able to pinpoint if there's an origin point for it? Like the client that I mentioned, who's a recent empty nester, are there elements of your life that have shifted? that have created this void. In my own life, when I moved across the country and I landed in Colorado, I felt like I landed directionless. I had a whole swath of expertise, but no audience, no platform in this new place that I lived. There was a void there that I was seeking to fill in other ways. I I think the first step for anybody on the path is determining whether the motivation is internal, external. If it is external, to come back to ourselves and foster the relationship that we have with ourselves. Some of the ways that I I work with clients in doing that is hands down, the very first thing, foundational, is something I call sacred solo time. And every single woman that works with me, a lot of the women that just have an intake call with me, whether they work with me or not, they get this assignment. Sacred solo time is a 10-minute commitment to yourself on a daily basis. Now, I don't care who you are, how busy you are, what title you have, what role you're in, you have 10 minutes. 
And if you cannot carve 10 minutes out for yourself, well, God help you believing that you're going to have a relationship <laughs> with another person. Very so, fair. Let's come back to, yeah, 10 minutes. Here's the magic about it is that we hold this 10 minute agreement with ourselves as a non-negotiable with any daily practice. And I'm putting air quotes around daily practice. I tell my clients to start with four days a week, because if you can hit four days a week, you're getting the majority and you're not beating yourself up because you didn't get seven. It's like, great, let's start with four. If four is too much, let's start with three. Let's make it just super easy. Let's get this commitment down. And it's non-negotiable, meaning you can't back out. If it's 10 o'clock at night, and you've already laid down in bed. Great. Then set a timer or just be conscious for 10 minutes laying in bed. Now, it doesn't really matter what you're doing in this 10-minute period of time. Some people like to sit and meditate. Other people like to go for walks. Some people like to play music and, and dance. You know, there's so many things that we could do in this 10-minute period of time. The rules are you can't consume content. So you're not listening to a podcast. You're not reading a book. You're not watching YouTube videos, which is my secret addiction. You could play music. I like to introduce that a little bit later on because as soon as we touch our phone, then we go down this rabbit hole of phone. But the real magic in it is this idea of non-negotiable commitment. And after a while, we build it up. We build it up to five days. We build it up to every day. After a while, when we hold this non-negotiable agreement with ourselves, we start to build this relationship with ourselves that's different than it ever once was. Because we're starting to say, okay, self, I'm going to say that I'm going to do this. And then when you show up to do it, you're teaching yourself that you are capable, that you are committed, and that you're worthy. You're worthy of upholding your own word to yourself. You're worthy of receiving the commitment that you've given to yourself. So anybody, whether they're on the journey to love, and this is the brilliant thing that I learned the hard way, and anybody in the position of growing love, we all need this sacred solo time. And th those are like the base rules for it. It can, you can make it your own. It can have different iterations, but the key points are that it's at least 10 minutes. It's non-distracted. It's uninterrupted. You're not consuming and it's a non-negotiable commitment with yourself. So should that be at the same time every day? Should it be just finding a time to do it? Like you mentioned, you didn't do it. It's 10 p.m. You still got to keep that commitment to yourself. But like yeah. practically, like how should somebody who thinks they're too busy for this carve out the time? What do you think about that? Yeah, great question. My my high level answer is work it in whatever way makes sense and whatever way you're able to do it. Busy people who run on a calendar, who are back to back to back day in, day out, I highly recommend putting it in your calendar. Because if you're anything like me, like if it's not in the calendar, it doesn't happen. As far as time of day, again, at the beginning, it's just like there's the saying, like if you're trying to be a runner, if you get out of bed and you put on your sneakers, you're already halfway there. This is the idea of, of sacred solo time. Just get it in however it fits. Just put on the sneakers. Over time, as it becomes a more committed practice, like exercise, if you've been exercising pretty consistently for a while and there's a day that you don't, your body starts to crave it. Your body's like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I should be in motion. The same thing is true with the sacred solo time. After you've been consistent for a while, you start to build that muscle. If you haven't already gotten a, a schedule or a system down at that point, it, it might make sense to implement a, a more structured schedule. It really depends on the individual. If they respond to structure or if they respond to flow, I want you to work it in according to your own needs. For me personally, 
I really prefer my sacred solo time in the morning. I didn't take that for a long time in my relationship. And I believe that this is one of the downfalls of my historic relationships is not prioritizing that time with myself. And I see this in a lot of the, the, the women that I work with too, is that just because we find somebody awesome doesn't mean that we ride off into the sunset happily ever after on a white horse. That would be nice. But the truth is, I truly believe that the work really begins once you've established commitment with somebody. Because now all of a sudden, if you're truly committed, you're not going to flip the table and walk out of the restaurant. You're going to hang around through the discomfort, through the ups and downs, and continue to try to find ways to make things work. And for me, and a lot of fiercely independent women, when they get into relationship, all that fierce independence kind of flies out the window. And all of a sudden, we're trying to be somebody in the relationship. We're trying to prove our worth, whatever it is. And we start making these sacrifices, these little sacrifices, one by one. And then all of a sudden, you wake up a year or two later or longer, and you say, what the heck? You know, that uh, talking head song. This isn't my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful car. How did I get here? And for me and, and, and many of the women that I work with, once we get into relationship, all of those things that were so important in attracting love, the sacred solo time, the mindful awareness of our felt sense, our emotional sense, our thoughts, all of that becomes even more important when we're in the container of partnership, because now we've got this cacophony of incoming information and an incoming sensory overload from this other person. I'd love to hear you explore the importance of our relationship with ourselves. It sounds like it's really important for us to, one, be aware that we have a relationship with ourselves and to develop that relationship. Why is that so important? And what are ways that we can develop our own relationship with ourselves and our self-love? Yes. Excellent. Big questions today. Why is the relationship with ourselves so important? Well, I believe that our relationship with our romantic partners are a reflection of our relationship with ourselves. We could extend that to other things in life as well. Money for one, our relationship with money is also a reflection of our relationship with ourselves. But back to the romantic partners, I'll speak from within the context of relationship at this point, though it certainly applies for anybody attracting. We express ourselves to others and communicate ourselves to others in a very similar way that we relate to ourselves internally. For example, I work with saboteurs in the work that I do. And I have a client who is a young woman and she was a college athlete. Her dad was a very driving force and her dad was a bit of a black and white thinker. Her early childhood, her early adulthood was framed very much in the context of right and wrong, good and bad. She would be the star of a game and driving home from the game, the debrief from dad would be, well, you could have done better. So this client developed a fierce inner punisher. The things that she was attempting to create in life when they didn't match the expectations that she had set for herself, that created a cascade of self-punishment, which sounded like you can't do anything right. You're such a screw up. What the hell is wrong with you? You're broken. And this started to show up in her romantic relationships. But the first sign of conflict, what's wrong with you? You're broken. You can't do anything right. Sometimes these conversations will stay internally. And if they stay internally, then usually that person will 
be apologetic and be enabling and really sacrifice themselves for the relationship. Sometimes these conversations become external and we start saying these things to your partner. What is wrong with you? Why did you do that? What were you thinking? Chances are that person has these same conversations, maybe not about themselves internally, but about everybody else externally. So when we see these behaviors show up in relationship, it's a clear indication that there is a misalignment inside. There's a misalignment with how we relate with ourselves. In the work that I do, we're trying to create the same kind of environment internally as we desire to share with another person. The women that come to me, when they describe their vision, they're saying, I want a true partner. I want somebody who loves me just as I am. I want somebody who sees my faults and loves me despite them. I was like, great. How do you feel about your faults? (laughs) Let's start there. (laughs) So creating that same environment that she wants externally, creating that internally The pathway to that is mindfulness, slowing down, observing ourselves in different scenarios, whether that be the woman who is attracting love and she's in constant eye roll energy, she's in constant anger and annoyance because the D-bags that are blowing up her inbox on her profile aren't worth a piece of whatever, or whether she's in relationship and her partner comes to her with complex feelings and she starts going into an internal spiral of how awful she is, what a terrible partner she is. She can't do anything right. She's broken. She may as well leave or whatever she's thinking. I know I used to think I may as well just throw myself down the stairs. It's a terrible thought. I'm a little embarrassed to share it, but it's the truth. Well, we can recognize like, oh, that's my inner punisher running rampant and telling me all kinds of lies that aren't true. So coming back to your question about creating self-love and really fortifying this relationship with self, I want to dispel a couple of myths. One of the biggest myths that I want to dispel is that the the secret to longevity is smooth waters. A happy, successful, long-term relationship is not based on not having conflict. And I think that a lot of people get tripped up when there is conflict because they don't know what to do with it. And then they internalize it. I'm going to use the example of the inner punisher again, because it's just one that's so familiar. Fortifying the relationship with yourself doesn't mean eradicating the inner conflict either. It doesn't mean getting rid of your inner punisher or trying to change that voice. But again, coming back to the idea of creating that environment internally, self-love is about creating love for the inner punisher, creating some understanding for her or him. Understanding looks like it's very understandable that you think this because of your history. It's very understandable that you would have that reaction because of the wound that it triggers. And at the same time, the work then is not only understanding, giving that inner voice understanding, giving it some tenderness, some love. It's really okay, inner punisher, and letting that inner voice know that adult self has got it. We're okay. Sometimes that conversation with inner self is also dispelling those lies and saying you may feel broken, but that isn't the truth. That's not the truth of who you are. And that's not the truth in this relationship. Although it may feel that way, this doesn't have to be an influencer in the relationship. This doesn't have to drive your your actions moving forward. I'm thinking about the journey that people take to attract love and to grow love. And it really is, I think, one of the most potent personal growth and development paths that we can be on because it takes so much mindfulness and because it takes... A prioritization of self in 
like recognizing our own worth, our own value, recognizing our desires and letting them be okay, even if they're like outlandish or even if we have judgment about our desires, letting those desires be okay. Again, spiritually leaning person, I believe that our desires are planted in our heart by the force that's greater than all of us as a being. And that it is our calling in life to move towards those desires, to become the person we're meant to be, to have those desires fulfilled. Having mutually committed, integrated romantic partnership is one of those desires. And the path towards that is this path of self-relating, falling in love with yourself, as the phrase goes, warts and all, so that we can come to another person in complete ownership of our 360 degree self, our light, our shadow. This is who I am. I've accepted it. And it's from that place of self-love that someone else can love us for who we are and create that true partnership versus I'm in love with my light. I love how I show up in the daytime in public with my sparkle and my eyelashes. But then behind closed doors, I'm beating myself up for my weight. I'm beating myself up for my income. I'm beating myself up for this, that, and the other. Then when it comes to dating, you're only showing your light and potentially creating a partnership with someone who will be just as critical of your shadow as you are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A few things that stand out to me. We all have a relationship with ourselves, whether we're aware of it or not. And mindfulness helps us become aware of the quality of that relationship. For me, for the longest time, until I was a good bit into meditating, I was completely unaware of the voice inside my head that is critical, very critical all the time. You're not good enough. You're not doing it right. This and that. Without awareness, that's just driving me. And now that I'm aware of it, it's still driving me in a lot of ways. Thinking about my relationship with my wife, anytime there's any conflict, I get super defensive. Last night, I got defensive about a door not closing. My wife was like, it hurts my hand to close the door. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with the door. <laughs> I didn't say it like that, but I was taking personal offense about this door. It doesn't make any sense, but that's just the inner critic of I'm not good enough. And if I don't work on accepting that as something that's there and meeting it with mindfulness and curiosity, oh, there it is again, that defensiveness, that not good enough, not doing it right, then I'm still owned by it. I think that there's a real wisdom in looking at our relationship with ourselves and our degree of self-love as important and real and essential to how we show up in our relationships with others. Because as you said, it's a mirror, right? For me, that defensiveness, every time I get any sort of critical feedback, not to mention my need for words of affirmation being my primary love language, all of that, it's all tied up together and really is, is foundational to my relationship. I think there's constant work to be done there, not from like a needing to fix something necessarily, but needing to meet and accept and work with that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing about your experience in relationship because it's so common. It's so common when our partner shares with us a need or a request or a feeling. It's almost our knee-jerk reaction for many of us to take it personally, 
and to react from that personally wounded place. There was a situation recently in my marriage where my husband shared with me a feeling that he's been having in our relationship. Like I've, I've been working on a project, I've been working on a launch, and I've been a little monofocused because that's how I get. He was sharing with me that he was feeling lonely and disconnected. In the past, in our relationship, I would take that personally, and that would send me into a spiral of, I can't do anything right. I'm broken. I'm the worst wife ever. What am I doing in this relationship? This person deserves so much more. It's this spiral of self-loathing and self-punishment or whatever you want to call it. It's just like this primitive, instinctual protection coping mechanism that we have all developed because we are adaptive, clever human beings with brains that work in a certain way that help us create mechanisms to protect ourselves from pain. Those primitive reactions protecting us from pain, some of them no longer apply. Part of this self-love is opening ourselves up to simply holding or simply being with emotional pain, emotional suffering. Like it hurts, it sucks, but it's not the end of the world. In many cases, it's not the end of your relationship. And again, this is where mindfulness and slowing down can help us in a lot of cases, we can simply receive emotional suffering as information. So for example, my husband shares with me, he's feeling lonely, he's feeling disconnected, I've been really busy. And I catch myself on the, the tightrope of, oh, I'm a shitty person versus my husband is sharing his feelings with me. His truth in this moment, that's all that is. Those are his emotions. That doesn't mean anything about our relationship. It doesn't mean anything about me. It doesn't mean anything about our future. It's just his truth in this present moment. You're feeling lonely. You're feeling disconnected. And not every partner is able to have that language, that emotive language. So part of growing lasting love is starting to, to, to learn how to read between the lines. And the way we do that is, again, first, internally, reading between the lines of like, oh, how fascinating. My husband shares with me how he's feeling. And then this is where I take it. How fascinating. We start to just go into this like a National Geographic explorer and detach a little bit from the emotional charge. I'm not saying that's easy, but, and it is a practice. It is achievable. And most of the time it would be available 24 hours later <laughs> after some of the heat of the conflict has died down. But the only way that we're able to shift the reaction in the moment is through practice and practice of that hindsight reflection. Okay, well, what happened yesterday that I can learn from today? After we are in that practice of hindsight reflection, hindsight untangling of what were the words that were actually said? What was it that I heard? What was my perception of that? What wound in me did that trigger? To what age did that comment take me back to? I'm giving a high level here, but this is deeper work that does take a fair amount of practice. But all of that is to say is that it is possible to shift the course of conflict when you're in the moment. But when that isn't achievable yet, the practice is let's take the conflict from yesterday, from a week ago, and, and examine it. Like pull out the microscope and get the words on your little Petri dish and really separate the facts from the the emotions, the reactions, and the subsequent fallout. Is that something you do by yourself, together, or both? Yeah, that's a great question, Adam. I'd say that it really differs for, for every relationship. For me, in my own relationship, it, it tends to happen both ways. It usually starts with me <laughs> needing to take some time out. In most couples, in conflict, we've got a pursuer and an avoider. 
And in conflict, we have one person who is very eager to be heard, very eager to reiterate and make sure their partner hears us because there's a need that's not being met and they're going to continue pursuing and moving in until they feel feel heard, which probably won't happen because they're in hyperarousal. There's also a partner who is on the opposite end of the spectrum. We call it hypoarousal, who in the face of this conflict is starting to shut down, is starting to retreat, is starting to get quiet, is starting to go inward and get flooded and not be able to respond or have words to communicate whatsoever. While on the other hand, their partner is just going off, but both people are activated. So in that moment, without any kind of regulation, there is no possibility for a mutual understanding, mutual connection. We're both activated. So in that dichotomy, I personally am the avoidant after years of practice. I have the ability now to say, I'm flooded. I'm not able to participate in this conversation. I love you. I need some space. And then I go off and I do my own processing. I start feeling, okay, what am I feeling? I'm feeling tense. I start with felt sense. I start with what does my body feel? I feel weepy. I feel the stingy sensation behind my eyes that feels like shame. I start to name those emotions. For me at this point, I have the felt sense connected with the emotional sense. Then I start to think about my thoughts. Like, what am I thinking? Where am I taking this? I have multiple different practices that I use on myself. I teach my clients that help us regulate and come back to the present moment. Four major pathways to regulation that I work with are breath, laughter, touch, and movement. There's so many possibilities under those four categories. But once I have some sense of regulation, once I have some sense of my frontal lobe being back online, then I can start to process the experience rationally. And once I have my information about like, how did I perceive what was said? What wound did that trigger in me? And how did that prompt the way that I reacted? What can I own and what can I commit to? Once I have those things crystallized, then I know that I can have a conversation with my partner about this because I've, I've found my feet. I have come back to my frontal lobe. I have regulated my, my primitive response. And pro tip for any couple out there, it's much easier to have a mending conversation when we're not in front-facing eye-to-eye contact. So whether that be we have a conversation sitting on the couch or we go for a drive together, it helps us stay in that frontal lobe, stay in that grounded place so that we can communicate the the untangling process, all of the gold, the treasure that we've discovered. Because the thing about the mending process, the thing about the mending conversation that I'm talking about, once we come back together and we can say, this is how I perceived what you said, this is how it hurt me, this is why I reacted, and this is what I can commit to moving forward. My gosh, those are the building blocks for intimacy. Those are the building blocks for longevity. When you can say to your partner, At the end of the day, I I recognize that I flew off the handle when you were really just telling me that you felt lonely. I'm really sorry that you feel lonely. Not that I feel sorry that you feel lonely, but I'm sorry that my actions have impacted you in this way. I never want you to feel lonely in this relationship. My goal in this relationship is to make you feel like the king of the fucking planet, the king of the universe, my favorite person on the planet, my one and only, my king. That's how I want to inspire your feeling. If we have a mending conversation that sounds something like that, there's hope. <laughs> There's hope for that couple. Yeah. Thank you for walking through that. That's helpful. So let's shift gears now into what I call the mindful fire final four. The first question is in a long-term committed relationship, what piece of advice would you give to people to come together and share what's going on for them? 
you gave the example of Nick coming to you and saying, I'm feeling lonely, I'm feeling disconnected. That's not the easiest thing to find the right words and the right way and the right time to do that. And so are there any practices that you share with your clients to communicate and connect in a way that says, hey, here's what's up for me? Yeah, absolutely. I draw this directly from the work of John Gottman, who is a prolific researcher in the the field of long-term relationship. And he has a system for conversation that always begins with what he calls a soft startup. And the soft startup is just like the knock on the door. The soft startup sounds like, hey, I've got something on my mind. I'd really love to connect with you. Are you available for a conversation right now? It's as simple as that. It's the knock on the door. It's almost the permission to go there. And it gives the other person the ability to respond and say, oh my gosh, yeah, of course, I'm I'm absolutely available to you. Or <laughs> like, actually, I'm up to my eyeballs and I'm feeling really stressed out. I would love to hold space for you, but can we schedule another time? It's the coming together conversation of when we can have this conversation. So absolutely soft startup. Perfect. Yeah, that's really helpful. The second question is, what piece of advice would you give to someone early on their path to financial independence? Yeah, I think that the answer to that question is very similar to the advice that I would give somebody early on the path to attracting love in their life. Recognize your motivators. Are they internally driven or externally driven? That might be it. <laughs> There's more for sure. But in, in the sake of brevity, I, I think that if we are seeking anything beyond ourselves to to come into alignment with or to create more of, it's really important to know what's driving us. Because the truth is, with money, with love, if there's an external void that we are trying to fulfill with these external sources, it's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough money. It's never going to be the right person. We're going to continue leaving the person that we're with, trying to find somebody better, trying to create more money, more wealth, which I completely understand in the retire early mindset. But at the same time, I want to retire early so that I can spend more time doing the things that I love, spending time with my family. That's an internal driver versus I got to make as much money as I can so that I can prove to my dad or my husband or, or so that I can prove myself in my community or so that I can be seen in a certain way. Understand your drivers, understand your motivators. Yeah, I think that's huge. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. The third question is, what piece of advice would you give to someone getting started with meditation and or mindfulness? Such a good question. I think the advice that I would give for that is one size doesn't fit all. I, for a very long time in my life, rejected meditation. I even rejected yoga because I would say I have too much energy. I cannot sit still. That's not for me. Yet I would pick up a hula hoop and I would be in that darn thing, listening to music and going into outer space for three hours at a time without coming up for air, water, or a pee break. And so one size doesn't fit all. Your meditative state or your access to your innermost self, your mindful state, it's not limited to a cushion on a mat. Find what works for you. For me, oftentimes it's walking in nature when the sun is out or roller skating. At this point in my life, I do sit on a cushion because it does change the flavor of the meditation. It, it offers me a different thing. But I would advise anybody who is beginning a journey of mindfulness meditation to, to just recognize that you can find that sense of self-awareness through multiple different channels. Very good. Finally, the last question is, how can people connect with you and your work online? Yeah, that's an easy one. <laughs> Coming out on the easy one. Thanks. My website is bexburtoncoaching.com. 
And anybody who visits, there is an invitation to a training that I run that is three mistakes fiercely independent women make that block them from lasting love. I run that training at least once a month, twice a month usually. I'm on Instagram primarily as Love Coach Bex, Beaks like T-Rex. And I'm also on YouTube as Love Coach Bex, Bex Burton Coaching. Fantastic. Well, Bex, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom with me and the audience today. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a a pleasure speaking with you and, and having this conversation, Adam. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining me on today's episode of the Mindful Fire podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bex Burton. If you got value from today's episode, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. This just lets the platforms know you're getting value from the episodes and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to help more people find out about it, please leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. As a reminder, you can find the full show notes for today's episode at mindfulfire.org 62. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time on the Mindful Fire podcast.